0: We are continuing our study now in Matthew chapter 10. We've got a big passage ahead of us, uh, verses 32 through 42. If you go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, My name is Dustin Daniels. I'm the pastor teacher here. Glad that you're here with us. Um, If you need a Bible, we do have them in the back. And then also my my sermon notes are in the, the foyer as well. If you want to follow along. But as you turn to Matthew chapter 10, uh, let me do a review because we've, we've been doing a verse-by-verse verse exposition of Matthew's gospel. We continue that. If you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to see Matthew chapter 10. It's mostly all red. Uh, Jesus is giving them a sermon. He's giving them his really the, the, ordin- the ordination ceremony. He's commissioning the 12 disciples into apostles. Apostles have the gifts, the, the supernatural gifts of healing and the power of demonic, over demonic spirits. And really, this chapter, we've we've spent three weeks into it now. Uh, this is a set of instructions, not only for the apostles, but it's also for you and me as disciples. Uh, there are certain things for the apostles only, and there are things for um, both the apostles and for us. And really look at this chapter as a set of hallmarks. This, you, we could consider this the indications or really the authentic stamp of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to do these things. And we do these things because Jesus, um, these are his instructions to us. Now, last week we, we talked about fear in verses 24 through 31. And we we learned how there are four main types of fear. Let me show these to you once again. We've got the fear of God. Uh, Scripture reveals the fear of people, the fear of the future, and also the fear of death. We had um, many key points, let me just focus in on two. Uh, Fear is a normal human emotion. That's in the proper context. There's there's nothing wrong with fear there. Fear will save our lives if it's in the the proper context. And then we talked about how to fear the right thing, um, or really to to fear the right person. Um, And then I I closed last week's sermon by, by stating that as Christians, we really do need to learn how to identify and confront and overcome our fears. It's normal to have fears, but living a life in fearfulness is not. That is abnormal. Um, the Lord came. He, he broke those chains, those strongholds of fear um, when he died on the cross and walked out of his grave. So a couple suggestions that I had for us is first things first, write your fears down. I pray that some of you did that. To write them down, to acknowledge them. And then bring those fears to the Lord. And you do that through uh, your quiet time, through uh, prayer, through his word. And then this is something that, that I didn't mention last week, but it's very, very important. If you want to see somebody, if you want to talk to somebody about your fears, guys, there's nothing wrong with seeing a qualified Christian or pastoral counselor in doing that. Um, if you need a resource, yeah, uh, the Biblical Counseling of Arizona there, biblicalcounselingaz.org, wonderful organization um, here in, uh, in, in Arizona. Good, good people. So if you feel like you need to talk those things out, I would recommend jumping on their website, and they'll get you in front of somebody there. Well, today we're going to close Jesus' instructions. We're going to finish up chapter 10 today. Um, Contrary to Jewish expectations, Jesus does not immediately bring peace or prosperity to the nation of Israel. There are many reasons for that, but today, Jesus, what he does, he presses into our decisions and our priorities. Jesus uses a very, very interesting word here. Uh, He says worthy. And we're going to learn about the worthiness of Jesus um, how so? In other words, how do our everyday decisions, how do our jobs, how do our retirement, how, how do our hobbies that we have, our time and our money, uh, how do all of those things impact our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's find out today. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. As we sang those songs and worship the Lord, let's worship the Lord by also reading this text together as one church and one voice, starting in verse 32, and we're going to go to verse 42. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me anyone who finds his life will lose it and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it the one who welcomes you welcomes me and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to the one, because he's a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. It's a big text in front of us today. And usually we don't look at big texts of big passages of scripture like this, um, but it's important to keep everything in context today. So we'll just be here for the next few hours until lunchtime, or so, and we'll go through this. You got to stay with me, right? But what we just read, guys, this is these words. If we're Christians, these are the the authoritative words that God has given to us, and they're authoritative because they're inspired, right? They're inspired because they are inerrant, they are without error, and they are not fallible. They will never fail us. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, you are so good to us, so good. The psalmist writes, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. We do pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes But before you open our eyes, Father, we pray as a church, you would please forgive us for our sins, for they are many. Forgive us for our our fears, forgive us for our pride, our anger, our ego, our lust. Forgive us, Lord God, we don't want anything between us and you as you teach us your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, let's take a, verse, uh, a look at verses 32 and 33 here. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. So last week, uh, once again, we talked about fear. Jesus closed with fear, and he taught us how not to fear people when sharing the gospel. The good news, instead, we are to fear God. He taught us, um, and and that's really why in verse uh, 32 we see that word, therefore. Therefore. As disciples of Jesus, we We have a reverent fear of Almighty God. And it's out of that reverence, it's out of excitement, you know? It's out of love that we want to acknowledge Jesus before other people. So the big picture here in verses 32 and 33, they point to Judgment Day. Jesus says, I will, twice, twice. Right? The grammar here is in the future. It's in the future active verse. He says, I will acknowledge or I will deny. Uh, Jesus' response on Judgment Day is in direct correlation to our duty and to our responsibility as a confessing Christian who shares Jesus day by day. That's the context, right, is evangelism. He's giving the apostles specific instructions to go on this short-term mission trip. So, um I love this from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, as Christians, what in the world are we ashamed of when it comes to the gospel? What are we ashamed of when it comes to Jesus? Man, he saved our wretched, sorry souls. And we are so grateful for that. Now, there are many ways to to share the gospel. It's not just done through formally with someone standing up here and preaching and teaching like we do on Sunday mornings. Um, If you went to the evangelism class last year with uh, the three circles, we learned about um, sharing Jesus day by day. It's not just for the pros, right? It's for the ordinary Joes. It's for everyone. It's called the Great Commission. So your personal witness is a, a way to share the gospel. So in other words, how you live your life, what you watch on television, what you watch on uh, the movies, what you say, how you speak, the tone in which you say those things, how you spend your money, how you carry yourself, all of those things, right? It's a witness, we're always a witness. Why? Because the world is always watching us. They're always watching, and they're, they're ready to go, uh-huh. You see that? It's not very much like Jesus. They're ready to point those things out, aren't they? There's a famous saying that's popular among some Christians. Maybe you've heard this. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Now, that's a cute and clever statement. It it really fits nice on a bumper sticker right right next to your your fish sign on your car, right? The statement is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Problem, though, is that Francis never said that. And he didn't say it because he doesn't agree with it. Francis preached up to five times a day. I mean... The guy was a preaching machine five times a day. A statement like this is culturally acceptable in our churches because because something like that, what it does is it eases our conscience. If we think to ourselves, you know what? Man, if I live this good moral life, whatever that means, hmm then I won't have to share the gospel because people will just automatically know the reason why I do what I do. Because, you know, I'm I'm just too shy. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't know enough about the Bible. And we say to ourselves things like, well, words are cheap, right? Actions speak louder than words. And then we read something like that and we go, oh, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Man, I just, I feel so much better. We think we're off the hook, don't we? But fulfilling the Great Commission is our duty. And just because we, we passed out some free food, you know, at the food bank a few months ago, doesn't get us off the hook of fulfilling the, the Great Commission. So is that, you know, what does Scripture say here? Um, We have this problem of this modern-day social justice gospel. Um, And the social justice gospel, guys, it is an incomplete gospel. Serving at the local food bank, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is no substitute for sharing the gospel with other people. I mean, think about it. Sharing, giving food out, that is the easiest form of ministry you can engage in. Why? Because who doesn't want free food? But it is no substitute for sharing the gospel. The Apostle Paul said this. He writes to the church in Rome, Romans 10, 13. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? He goes on to say in verse 15, how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say how beautiful, I love this, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the the free food? Oh, no, no. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring food? The good news so yeah we're, we're to live out the gospel and at the same time we are to speak it verbally um, and that's what Jesus is saying here in verses 32 and 33 everyone who will acknowledge me before others I will acknowledge him before my father in heaven but whoever denies me before others I will also deny him before my father in heaven so to acknowledge to confess It means that we affirm and we agree with the gospel. Acknowledgement is different than recognition. Let me show you what I mean here. Do you guys know that um, even the demons recognize that God is the sovereign creator of the universe? James 2.19. Who doesn't love the book of James? I had a pastor tell me one time, when you read the book of James, it's just like putting on a well-worn pair of jeans. They're just comfortable because James is so real. He's so real. He says, okay, you guys say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in fear. James is saying, man, you believe that there's a God? Well, let's give you a golf clap. Good for you, man. You've got the faith of a demon, Look, guys, the demons know that, the God, that God's real, right? They, they were cast out of heaven. They know. But they don't acknowledge. They don't honor. They don't revere. They, they don't worship him as God. As Christians, we acknowledge and we share what God has done in our lives because we have received him as Lord and Savior. He is a personal God to us. Romans 10, 9, talking about confession. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart that results in salvation. And once again, look at this word. You confess, you acknowledge with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Excuse me. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. Righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And then verse 11, for the scripture says, and this is really good, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. You're not going to be put to shame by others. God will right every single wrong when it comes to people mocking you or making fun of you because Jesus is your Lord, and you're not afraid to tell people about him. Now look, hard times We'll test our faith, and it's it's in this testing, right, that that where we build spiritual muscle. Who doesn't want more spiritual muscle? Are we all a little flabby on that? I know I am. Hard times hit a guy named uh, Damus damas had been ministering alongside the apostle paul paul mentions damas next to mark and luke in colossians chapter 4 and also in the book of philemon and and paul calls damas a co-worker so damas was preaching he's teaching he's serving man he's getting after it he's on fire we like to say that don't we? he's on fire for the lord but something happened second timothy Chapter 4, Paul writes to Tim and he says, Hey, Tim, come and make every effort to come see me soon. Why is that, Paul? Because Damas deserted me. What? How did Damas desert you? Are you kidding me? Well, he, he loved this present world. He's gone to Thessalonica. So, Damas. He didn't continue acknowledging Jesus before others. Maybe he deconstructed his faith. That's kind of a hip, cool term right now, isn't it? Deconstruction. Deconstruction, um, if you're not familiar with the term, that's where you remove Jesus from the throne and you crown yourself king. That's convenient, isn't it? Uh, many well-known authors and um, Christian bands are going through a deconstruction phase, and they're, they're walking away from the Lord. So maybe, just maybe, Damas failed to, to acknowledge Jesus by keeping silent. Maybe he kept silent. Maybe he should have spoken up. That's the sin of omission. Maybe Damas denied Jesus uh, by his actions. Maybe he was just living like the rest of the world. I mean, it's a combination of all these things. Now, look, we, we all do this at times, don't we? We all do think, Well, I should have said something right there, but I didn't say it. Or maybe I should have kept my mouth shut, and I didn't. But we all do those things. But Jesus is talking about a consistency, a constancy with this. Uh, many years ago, this is so funny i uh I was walking out of a restaurant and I see a guy that I know, and I know he's a worship leader, um, and he's meeting with some friends and uh, I introduced myself to the friends and it just it turns out that this worship leader leader's friends had no idea that this man was a Christian, let alone a worship leader i said you guys I, literally you guys don't know that he." He sings at a church? Well, no. And one guy said, I knew something was different about you. (laughs) Wow. Key point number one. If we continually, if we constantly deny Jesus through our words, if we keep silent, or maybe our actions, look, guys, we are in danger of Jesus denying us Before his Father in heaven. In other words, if we if we say we're a Christian and we continue to do these things, we're not a Christian. We're not saved. There's a love for Jesus. He saved our wretched soul. Just playing the part. Judas. Judas comes to mind. Judas is a guy that professed Jesus, but he he, he did not acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. He's the classic example of someone who professes faith, but doesn't confess him as Lord. And there are Judases in every church. Please know that. Verse 34, so Jesus goes on to say, look, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Assumptions, uh oh, they get us into trouble, don't they? All all these expectations that we have. The first time you walked into River Bible Church, you had some expectations, didn't you? You expected the church to be clean. You expected people to be kind and say hello. You expected the music to be a certain style of music or to have a certain theme or, or words. You expected the preacher to maybe look a certain way and dress a certain way and preach a certain and then you ended up with me. <laughs> we like to set the bar really low here at River Bible Church. Jesus is saying, look, guys, don't presume, don't suppose anything until you've got some more information here. Look at verse 34 again. This is a fascinating verse theologically. Notice here, Jesus says, I came and then I did not come. Isn't that fascinating? Came from where? Bethlehem, that's where he was born. Nazareth, that's where Jesus grew up. No, Jesus is talking about heaven. Jesus is pointing to his pre-existence. When Jesus stepped down off his throne in heaven, Isaiah, is such, Isaiah 6 is such a beautiful picture of what, what's going on in heaven as Jesus is sitting on the throne and, and there's angels constantly singing, holy, 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 all the time. And they love doing it. Jesus stepped down off that throne became a man he was born of a virgin so that he could bypass human sin he lived a perfect life he died a substitutionary death a death that we deserved by the way but he experienced that death to extinguish the father's wrath he was buried in a borrowed grave (laughs) and then he's got the audacity to walk out of that grave three days later to conquer sin and death that's what he's talking about here. So when Jesus came from heaven, he started a spiritual battle for everyone. And that spiritual battle is what rages around us today. So Jesus says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on, on the earth. Now, isn't that odd? I mean, how many Christmas cards do you get that say, peace on the earth? Look at this. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would not only be a person of peace, but the prince of peace. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. That's the Lord Jesus. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. But Jesus said, "Don't, don't assume that I came to bring peace, and he's the prince of peace. When Jesus was born, the angels said to the shepherds in Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people that he favors. Jesus even said in John 14, he said, I'm leaving you you guys with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give, it's a gift. The world can't receive it. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm giving you peace. Peace. When Jesus was being arrested, Peter pulled out his sword, right? He starts lopping off people's ears. What did Jesus do? Did he say, get them, Peter? Is that what he said? No. He said, Peter, put your sword away. Those who use the sword are going to die by the sword. So what's the deal? Which one is it, Jesus? I'm confused. Is it peace or sword? Is Jesus talking out both sides of his mouth here? Verse 34, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Please write in your Bibles. This this is a symbol for spiritual conflict. The sword is a symbol for spiritual conflict. Please remember that the the universal symbol for Christianity is, is the cross, right? It's not a sword. The symbol for Islam, that's the sword cross. It's a symbol of suffering and death. So Jesus' point here in verse 34 is this, the peace that Jesus brings, the peace that he's talking about here is much deeper than than the temporary human relationships that we have. And it brings us to key point number two. Jesus offers eternal peace between a holy God and a sinful man. Jesus offers eternal peace between a holy God and a sinful man. So in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall, we learn of the proto-evangelum, the, the first mention of the gospel, right? Um, Genesis 3:15, I wanted to paraphrase this from the Greek because it's, it's kind of hard to understand in some of the other translations. Genesis 3:15. this is the first mention of the gospel. Jesus strikes Satan's head with a deadly blow. But first, Satan bruises Jesus' heel. See, guys, Jesus came. Jesus came to earth to defeat our enemies. We got three enemies Satan, sin, and death. And he came because we can't defeat those enemies. Jesus came to break the strongholds of sin. Now, please know that if, if Satan is so proud that he's going to demand to be worshiped by the Son of God, he is also so proud he's not going to give up easily in this spiritual battle that we're in either. Key point number three, becoming a Christian does not mean the absence of conflict. Becoming a Christian, staying a Christian, finishing life well, doesn't mean that you're going to have an absence of conflict. In fact, the opposite is true many, many times, right? Before things get better, they usually get worse. And that's Jesus' point. Man, look at this. Verse 35. He says, I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Against. It means to cut in two. It's to split apart. Sometimes temporarily, but sometimes it's a permanent situation. And then in verse 36, he continues, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. We talked a little bit about this uh, last week. But when you look at verses 35 and 36, we have to ask, okay, whoa, whoa. <laughs> What's Jesus doing here? Is he picking a fight for no reason? No, what what Jesus is doing, he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the prophet Micah. Uh, That's why your Bible is in bold or maybe italics. Micah speaks of how divisive families will become when the Messiah arrives. Look at this, Micah 7, 6. For the son despises his father. The daughter defies her mother. The daughter-in-law defies her mother-in-law. Your enemies, they are right in your own household. And as disciples, we are to expect that same kind of uh, conflict. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus himself, he experienced this conflict. John chapter 7, the gospel of John. Uh, this is interesting. His brothers, so his his uh, really his stepbrothers, they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know what? You know what you should do? You should leave here and go to Judea. That's what you should do, and, and because your disciples, they need to see everything that you're doing, the works that you're doing, for no one does anything in secret since he's seeking public recognition. Isn't that what you're doing, Jesus? Don't you want to be famous? Or aren't you getting people to notice you here? No, no, no. You, you got to show yourself to the world. So what his brothers were saying to to Jesus is, look, if you think you're God, then you need to leave small town Cottonwood and you need to go to big city Phoenix where all the the VIPs are. That's what you need to do, Jesus. And then in verse 5, John gives some commentary. For not even his own brothers believed in him. So Jesus experienced Exactly what he's sharing with us today. Brings us to key point number four. Our love of God and our love for God must precede every other human relationship. Our love of God, our love for God, it comes before anyone and anything. You know, many times, faith in Christ can and will renew a home. I mean, many of us, we've seen a, a wife uh, come to faith soon after, a husband comes to faith. Um, we, we watch how God intervenes in that and uh, what used to be um, a, a household to where it was just filled with, with hatred and disunity. Um, the Lord slowly turns that around, even an abusive household. The Lord turns that around with genuine, supernatural love and care for one another. Um, But we've also seen it go the other way, haven't we? Somebody comes to faith and it goes from bad to worse. Let me give you an example. Let's take the current debate about homosexuality for a moment. Let's let's suppose a, a young married couple gets saved they get saved by God's grace. They get excited about sharing Jesus with, with their family at Thanksgiving or Christmas. So they show up, and they're all fired up. And at first, their, their families are tolerant, and, and they're somewhat supportive of their newfound faith. But it only takes a few minutes. you know, Once the surface talk is over, family members start to get a little annoyed, and they start to ask questions. So, do you now believe that Aunt Betty and Aunt Becky are are sinners because they happen to be gay? Do Do they need to be forgiven because they were born this way? Are they going to hell because they're sinners? Who are you? Who are you, by the way, to come into this house and start judging our family members? Who are you to deny anybody happiness? What's our young couple to do? They're going to speak up? They're going to shut down. Are they going to acknowledge or are they going to deny? Well, Jesus presses in here to ensure that we are all crystal clear on this point. Verse 37, look at this. He says, the one who loves a father or mother more than me. You're not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus uses that word worthy three times here in the next two verses. Worthy means deserving. You're not deserving of me. You're not deserving of the salvation that I'm offering you. You know, it's it's fascinating when you talk about the family because in the creation narrative, God puts so much value on the family that marriage is the first institution that he creates. The family was ordained by God before any city was ever built, any nation ever formed, or any law ever penned. There was the family. And yet, the family is not supreme. God is. God is. Now, this concept of being unworthy, that that may sound familiar to us. John the baptizer said this, speaking of Jesus, he's the one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy enough to tie his shoes, right? I'm not worthy enough to untie the the sandals. In the parable of the, the wedding banquet, Jesus said this in Matthew 22. He said, the banquet's ready, but those who were invited. Were not worthy. And the parable of the prodigal son. The son's coming back home. He's completely spent all of his money. He's practicing what he's getting ready to say to his dad. In verse uh, in Luke fifteen nineteen here he says, "I am no longer worthy to be called your son." So dad, just just make me one of your hired workers. And then he gets in front of his dad and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 38, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Taking up our cross or taking up the cross In the first century, points to the Roman custom, forcing a criminal, a guilty criminal, to carry a literal cross uh, to his crucifixion. This man was essentially a dead man walking. He's got zero rights as a person. The mob of people could do whatever they wanted to do with him as he was walking uh, to be um, judged and and crucified. Please know only the, the worst criminals bore a cross, and they bore a cross because they were sentenced to die in prolonged agony. The Romans were perfecters of pain. They tried to to make the death process as long as possible. And the reason the Romans did this is because they were showing the citizens of how to stay in line. So when Jesus said this, no apostle missed this point from Jesus. The apostles were probably shocked and scared and offended all at the same time. Now, today we hear people take this verse out of context. Well, you know, putting up with my mother-in-law, that's my cross to bear. (laughs) Dear friends, that's not what this verse means. The cross, it is filled with with real pain. It is filled with a prolonged death. What's that mean for us today? I mean, we don't die on crosses today. Verse 39, Jesus says, anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me, you're going to find it. You hear people say, oh, man, I'm losing it. You ever hear somebody say that? Just losing it. Why are they losing it? Well, probably because they're living for themselves and their priorities are upside down. Notice the paradox here in this verse. Any attempt to avoid the cross and preserve our lives inevitably results in losing what you were trying to gain. But accepting the cross, giving up your life Results in gaining true life. We are to love our family, no doubt. Our friends, absolutely. We are called to even love our enemies. Don't you love that command? But guys, listen. We have to love, if we're disciples now. If we're disciples. We gotta love Jesus above everyone else. The priorities for a disciple are Jesus Jesus, Jesus. That's it. Everything else comes below that. You know, loving this life that God is gratefully, he's just given us such a life to live. We're so grateful. But loving it really turns into a roadblock for many of us. So key point number five, all that to say this. The cross is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. The cross is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. Now, unfortunately, the cross has lost its punch in our day and age. And the reason that it's lost its punch is because we love the cross. As Christians, we love the cross, right? The problem with loving the cross is that we've tamed it. We've sanctified it. I mean, look look how pretty it is. It's all shiny back there. And, and, and we wear the cross on, our, on our, our rings and our necklaces. We put them on our cars and put them on our logos. And by doing so, the horror and the shame and the dread of the cross, it's all lost. But Jesus's illustration is still very relevant for us today. So the, those who live for themselves die Twice. They die a physical death on earth, and then they will experience a continual conscious death in a very real place called hell. However, those who die to themselves on the earth, when they pick up their cross, they die once, and they live twice. They live now, and they live forever. Jesus continues now in verse 40. He says, the one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. So in other words, those who accept the gospel will accept the ones who bring them the gospel. But look at this in verse 40, the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. He's talking about the father. There's no such thing as believing in God without believing in God the Son. Nobody gets to heaven bypassing Jesus. John 8, 19, the crowd asked Jesus, so where is your father? You keep talking about your father, where is he? And Jesus says this, he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would also know my father. So that brings us to key point number six. Receiving Jesus is equivalent to receiving God the Father. Receiving Jesus is equivalent to receiving God the Father. I want you to think about your own children, your grandchildren. Don't you love the people who love your own kids? How much more does a Heavenly Father love people who love His Son? Verse 41, anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. So a prophet here is not only someone who um, the Lord uses to predict certain and specific events, but really it's someone who shares the gospel. This could be a preacher, a teacher. Uh, The righteous person there, that's a Christian That's someone who's fulfilling the great commission. So in other words, God is saying in verse 41 and 40, 40 and 41, he rewards those who take care of his people. And then in verse 42, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. That phrase there, little ones, those are believers who seem insignificant. Uh, they might be new believers. That they could be older disciples too. That really have never brought any attention to themselves. Uh, Jesus's point here is that any service done to any of his disciples or his people amounts to serving him. When you serve God's children, you are serving him. I mean, think about it. It costs nothing. Costs very little. Um, and, and takes no time to give a bottle of water to someone. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. Give a cup of cold water. You're serving me. Um, a kind word to someone who's having a bad day it can change their whole day. Have you ever, you ever make it a game? Maybe I would encourage you to make this a game here. You're at Walmart, you're at Safeway, you're getting groceries, and you just see people just having a bad day. See if you can make them smile. Give them a kind word. I heard this story of a couple students in high school. There was this guy named Kyle, and Kyle was new, and it was a Friday afternoon, and he's walking home from school, and Kyle had all of his books, so he's carrying all these books, all of them. And then Mike sees Kyle. He doesn't know him, but he thinks, why is this guy carrying all these books? It's Friday. Man, what a nerd. This guy must be a nerd. As soon as he said that, there was a group of other uh, of guys, high school students, who come over and they start making fun of Kyle. They push him down, spills books everywhere, his glasses go flying, and they laugh and then they leave. Kyle gets up, kind of dusts himself off, and he sees, uh, Mike sees his face. He's really, really upset. So he runs over, and he says, hey, 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 you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Gives him his glasses. He said, uh, you don't worry about those guys. Those guys are jerks. He said, I, my name's Mike. I'm Kyle. Are you new here? Yeah, I just, we just moved here. He said, uh, you live around here? Yeah, we just live right down the street. Well, hey, we're going to be playing some football um, tomorrow. Would you like to play some football with us? Yeah, I think I would. I think I would like to play some football. Fast forward, so they were freshmen. Fast forward three years. Mike and Kyle got to know one another. They became best friends. Kyle became the valedictorian. Good-looking guy, obviously very smart, also athletic. Everybody loved Kyle, loved him. So graduation day, Kyle is uh, given his valedictorian speech and he shares this story um, of the day when he was carrying all of his books home. And the reason that he was carrying all of his books home was because he didn't want his mom to clean out his locker for him because he decided that he was going to commit suicide that day. And everybody, the whole school was just, like gasped. How could this good-looking, athletic, smart guy who was so winsome, everybody loved, why would he think that? Mike stepped in, gave this man a cup of cold water, became his friend, and changed his life forever. That's what Jesus is saying, right? How simple is this to, to, to make somebody smile? You see somebody in the store, and, 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 they've, and, and she's, you know, it, it's mom, and there's three or four kids, and she's having a hard time. How about instead of being irritated that they're making so much noise, we go over and just wink at mom and say, hey, mom, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. That's what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus teaches, he teaches us about worthiness today, and I, I, I wanted to end on on the worthiness of Jesus. A couple things to to think about as we go home. Are we worthy in our own relationships? These are things that I've noticed over the past 15 years of ministry. You guys change your schedule when family or friends visit. You change your schedule a bit? So, for example, are are you fearful of inviting them to church? Maybe you're you're fearful of leaving them in your own house for a few hours while you go to church. (laughs) Maybe you're fearful of, of even praying at dinner in your own house because they're there. How are your relationships compared to the relationship that you have with Jesus? What about work? Are you fearful of, of placing boundaries on your work? Your, your boss is working you to death. Maybe uh, may, Are you fearful of, of telling your boss how important Sunday mornings are to you? And Wednesday nights? You need some personal time? That you'll work any other day except those, those times and days throughout the week? Are you fearful that you might lose your job by having this kind of conversation? Or maybe are you fearful because he, he, you, know, you tell him that you're a Christian and it may make life harder for you. What about our, our worthiness when it comes to our, our personal things, our hobbies, our own calendar, our, our money? Are we, are we spending time in a worthy manner when it comes to following Jesus? And the last one here. Are we worthy in the the context of our culture? Once again, are we fearful of the culture? Especially with the hot topic of the day. I hate to keep talking about it, but it's always in front of us. And that is homosexuality. These transgender ideologies. Are we going to shut down? Are we going to share the good news? These things test our worthiness. And dear friends... Not to make you feel guilty, all right? It's just something to make us consider. Look in our rearview mirror, see how we're doing, take these things before the Lord. See what He says in prayer and what He says through His Word. Father, we do thank you for teaching us about being worthy. We want to be worthy, and yet it's impossible to be worthy apart from you we got nothing we pray that you would increase in our lives and that we would decrease we pray for more of you and less of us we pray that that we would trust you in a way that we've never trusted you before we want you to say welcome good and faithful servant so, Father, let us ponder all these, these things today. Let's ponder these things this week. Next week, Lord God, you're going you're to teach us about doubt. John the baptizer starts to doubt. We have much to learn about doubt. So you've taught us about fear. You've taught us about worthiness. And you're going to teach us about doubt. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts so we can get these things into our bones and that we would would be a light to those here in the Verde Valley. We would be salt. We would give hope that we would be a Mike to a Kyle. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.